Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. As a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They think it strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation, and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached, even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to men in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Oh, good morning, everyone. It's uh, good to see you again. I've got a relatively non-controversial passage from the Bible this morning. <laughs> As we come to the first section uh, of 1 Peter chapter 4. And like any reputable speaker, I try to acknowledge my sources. So I declare now that I found the Tyndale commentary on 1 Peter to be invaluable. It was written in 1959 quite a while ago now, by the late great Alan Stibbs, who was the vice principal of Oak Hill Theological College, and some have jokingly said that the letters of his surname, S-T-I-B-B-S, stood for senior tutor in basic biblical studies. <laughs> and also, too, uh, I acknowledge um, Stephen Cole, who was the pastor of a church in Arizona until he retired last year. The title for this um, study this morning is Living for the Will of God. And what that really means, I think, is living a holy life, doing what God wants us to do, as well as not doing what he doesn't want us to do. And it was very interesting in, uh, in the, uh, what I think you call words of knowledge. And the lady came and said, uh, wanted to pray for people especially who felt that they didn't measure up. Well, actually, yeah, that applies to every one of us, doesn't it? <laughs> None of us measure up. But the, uh, the great good news of the gospel is we have a saviour who does measure up and uh, he gives his power and forgiveness to us. I always remember a verse of a, 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 line, of, a line from an old hymn came to mind as um, the lady was speaking just now. And it's something I don't think I've sung in half a century. Those who fain would serve thee best are conscious most of sin, of wrong within. Remember the one? I can't remember which hymn it was. I'll have to Google it when I get home. <laughs> but uh, there we go. Living for the will of God is what holiness is all about. Some shocking facts uh, now that I came across on the internet. In 1988, an American magazine for pastors commissioned a poll to determine how common is pastoral indiscretion. And one question was, since you've been in local church ministry, have you ever done anything with someone who is not your spouse, 
that you feel was sexually inappropriate? And uh, the responses came back. 23% said yes, and 77% said no. A second question was more explicit. Have you ever had a sexual relationship with someone other than your spouse since you've been in local church ministry? This time the answers came back. 12% said yes. 88% said no. To put these figures in perspective, the article went on, they also surveyed subscribers to Christianity Today magazine, uh, people who are not pastors, and the incidence of immorality was nearly double. 45% said they'd done something they considered to be sexually inappropriate. 23% admitted to adultery. This was more than 30 years ago, and I've no way of verifying the figures quoted or know any, knowing anything about the theological outlook of the pastors who were consulted. But I cannot believe that things have improved in the last 30 years in this country or America. Only to say that the figures I find incredibly depressing, to say the least. I don't know much about other denominations, but I know that in the Church of England, there are a lot of bishops and clergy who would consider acceptable behavior things that I would consider to be inappropriate. But that's the state of play. That's the state of thing. As uh, the Bible says, the heart is desperately wicked. And don't we need that savior to deliver us from sin and to make us more and more like himself? Holiness. It's not fashionable to describe any kind of activity as sin, and even less fashionable to talk about holiness of life. And yet this is really what Peter is talking about here in the first two verses. Therefore, he says, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body has finished with sin. As a result, they do not live like the rest of their earthly do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. What's Peter really saying here? First, he seems to be saying that we need to have the same attitude to life, suffering and death that Jesus had, which means that uh, the Christian should have a whole different world view to the non-Christian. What is the worldview of a non-Christian on average? Tends to be centered around personal fulfillment, possessions, sex and money, power, and perhaps the acclaim of others. For the Christian, things are meant to be different. Our aim should be to please God, to do his will, and to help others. Peter says that whoever suffers in the body has finished with sin. What does that mean? Well, certainly I can recall um, a year or so ago lying in a hospital bed after surgery and waiting for the nurse to come round with the pain relief medications. And uh, the pain, which wasn't unbearable by any means, but it certainly stopped me from thinking about which of the young female nurses were the most attractive in the ward. <laughs> But I think that um, this verse means much, much more than that. When the Lord Jesus Christ suffered and died on the cross, he bore our sins in his body. 
when he died, the Bible says, he died to sin, as the Apostle Paul puts it. He did away with the penalty of sin, which should have been ours. But after that, he rose again from the dead. New life for him, and it's this new life which he offers to us sinners. Paul speaks about what happens to someone when they become a Christian. And that, of course, is dramatically acted out when they're baptized. Romans chapter 6 and verse 3 and a few verses after that says this. Don't you know that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Paul says becoming a Christian and being baptized means that we died and were buried with Christ. You know, as you go down into the water, picture of drowning, dying with Christ. But Jesus rose again from the dead, and so do we symbolically as we're brought up out of the water, as Christ was brought up out of the grave. But not to carry on living out our old life, as we always had done, but to live a new life, now with Jesus Christ as Lord, and with us as his servants, and us trying to follow his rules and regulations. Paul continues in Romans 6, Our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with. Anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Sometimes people have misunderstood these verses, I think. And John Stott, in his commentary on Romans 6, puts it like this. He sees our life as divided into two chapters. Chapter 1 of our life is when sin and self-rule uh, when we don't care tuppence about God. And chapter two is our new life in Christ, when sin has been forgiven and it no longer rules our life. He says that it is certainly not impossible for us to go back to our old way of life, um, committing sin uh, with abandon, but it's inconceivable that we should. But there are Christians who've understood that dying to sin means that we're no longer capable of sinning. And some have even claimed to have been sinless for a number of years. Sadly, though, this is quite impossible. And anyone who really knew themselves would realize that it was impossible as well. And that's why John wrote in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 8, that if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. If we reckon with sinless, we're kidding ourselves. We can't be. That's the way that we are. We might have the will not to sin, but sooner or later, in some way or another, we manage to fall into it. But with God's help, sin is no longer the ruling factor in our lives. That's the important thing. We'll certainly fall into sin from time to time. But even so, as John reminds us, the blood of Jesus still cleanses us when we come to him for forgiveness. Peter continues in verse 3, for if you have spent enough time in the past, for you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, 
living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. I'm not going to try and um, expound exactly what each of those things means. <laughs> I think we probably know well enough without that. Not, but not all of us have actually lived quite like that before we were Christians. <laughs> not many of us have um, been um, regular drunks, um, uh, parties uh, with orgies and carousing and engaging in idolatry and all the rest of it. I'm reminded of one of the first Christian books that I ever read. It was called um, Danger, Saints at Work. I don't know if some of you, some of you have ever come across it. It was written by a lady called Jean Rees. And there was a chapter entitled, How Not to Give a Testimony. And uh, they went on to describe a middle-aged man who was speaking at an evangelistic meeting, and he told the congregation of his life before he was a Christian of how there was no area of sin that he hadn't plumbed and there was no depths of depravity to which he had not sunk before he gave his life to Christ at the age of eight. <laughs> but even if we haven't lived lives of depravity and debauchery in the past, we've all been affected to a greater or lesser extent by the overarching values of the society that we live in. Since the age of TV advertising, and probably long before that, we've lived in a consumer society where we are constantly encouraged to live better for less and to regularly update every kind of appliance and to buy the latest gadget. I say that as I've got my um, Android tablet on the communion table with the communion service words on it. <laughs> but we're not immune, are we? We all are like gadgets. But we live in a materialistic world in the West when uh, me, my possessions, sex, wealth is the centre of everything. We've forgotten the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 12 and verse 15 where he said... Guard yourselves against every form of greed, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. It's no wonder that it's recorded in Acts chapter 17 that a mob in Thessalonica accused the Christians of turning the world upside down. The Christian worldview does that. The non-Christians' priorities tend to be me first, others second, and God last of all. But Christianity turns on its head all those kind of things and it becomes now God first, others second and me last of all. Turned upside down. But as the years have gone by, society has become more and more obsessed by sex as my opening uh, uh, piece of information from the internet says. But it's only in very recent years, I believe, that the British government, in common with most Western governments, has passed legislation which is in direct contradiction of Christian teaching. I refer, of course, to the so-called Marriage Same-Sex Couples Act of 2013. This, in fact, put the Church of England in a very embarrassing position of having to oppose the government, in spite of the fact that, as the established church, Church law is actually part of the law of the land, uh, which uh, is very difficult to square. 
But the supporters of same-sex marriage at the time tried to reassure Christian traditionalists by saying that the new law would not affect us at all. But in fact, the legal definition of marriage has changed for everyone. Since then, there have been, there's been much more emphasis on uh, equality, legislation, LGBT rights, and all the rest of it. I wonder if you read recently about uh, a doctor who was working for the Department of Work and Pensions, uh, Dr. Macarith, very recently, a Christian doctor. And uh, his line manager asked him if he would be prepared, if uh, a six-foot bearded man came to see him, would he be prepared to call him a woman if, as asked, <clears throat> if he was asked to do so and to record him as that? And he realized, he replied, that he couldn't do that. And the result was that he was sacked from his job. He appealed, and on the 1st of October this year, the appeal court's ruling uh, was this. Uh, God, uh, and uh, it talked about um, belief in Genesis 1.27 was something that the judge referred to, and that is that um, God made mankind in his own image, uh, in, his own, in the image of God he created them, male and female he created them. And the judge went on to say, lack of belief in transgenderism and conscientious objection to transgenderism, in our judgment, are incompatible with human dignity and conflict with the fundamental rights of others, specifically here, transgender individuals. And the judge added, insofar as those beliefs form part of his wider faith, that is Dr. Makarath's faith, his wider faith also does not satisfy the requirement of being worthy of respect in a democratic society, not incompatible with human dignity and not in conflict with the fundamental rights of others. I found that judgment very worrying indeed, because it means, amongst other things, that you really cannot live out your biblical Christian faith without being in danger of losing your job. It also means, too, that not only is free speech denied, but you can be compelled to say things which are against your conscience or your faith. Worrying developments indeed. For many centuries, the church and Christians in the UK have been a respected part of society. Even if not many people were actively involved with Christianity, Christians were looked up to as a force for good in the country. I fear that that situation is changing. And I don't think that the church in the UK has really begun to realize that yet. Many of the movers and shakers in society, government, and indeed in the judiciary, no longer see Christianity as a force for good, but rather as sometimes a force for evil. It's fine to proclaim the love of Jesus. Nobody is going to mind that. But if you start applying Bible teaching to everyday life, you're in danger of being branded a hater and a bigot. We live in a scary world today, not unlike the world of the first centuries of the church. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 4 speaks about the pagans. It says, They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless wild living, and they heap abuse on you. 
It's never been easy to be different from most of the people around you, and even more difficult if they misunderstand you and hurl abuse at you because you want to live according to Bible teaching. But of course, it's even harder for our fellow Christians overseas. Where there are, and there are many places overseas where Christians are hunted down and killed just because they acknowledge Christ is Lord. But as Paul remarks in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 7, God is not mocked. Verse 5 of our passage, they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. The last verse of our little passage has been misunderstood by some people who have thought that people might have an opportunity to hear the gospel after death. And uh, for this is the reason the gospel was preached, Peter says, even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body and live according to God in, the, in regard to the spirit. The idea that people have a chance of uh, hearing the gospel and repenting after death is not supported by the context of other verses in this passage, nor in other parts of the Bible. For example, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. People are destined to die once, and after that, to face judgment. I believe that the little phrase, the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, simply refers back to the previous verse, which talked about Jesus as the judge of the living and the dead. And what I believe verse 6 is saying there is that the gospel was preached to people before their death, and particularly that the gospel has eternal significance, not just for this life, but for life beyond the grave as well. It was Paul who said that if it's only in this life that we've hoped in Christ, we're of all men the most to be pitied. The gospel has eternal uh, significance beyond the grave. It's all-encompassing as well. It speaks to life and death, and especially to our everyday lives as we interact with people around us. Living a life of holiness is hard. We will be misunderstood. Sometimes we'll be accused of being holier than thou, other times we'll be accused of denying the love of Jesus by being haters and bigots. Doing what God wants is never going to be easy. It never was and it never will be. But with his strength and the power of his Holy Spirit within us, the presence of Christ with us day by day, anything is possible with him. Let's bow our heads in prayer for a few moments now. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for all you have said in your word and in the New Testament through the apostles. Lord, we pray that as we seek to live for you, help us, Lord, to put you first. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on you, the author and perfecter of our faith. Help us, Lord, to live according to your will. And we ask it for your name's sake. Amen.
Thank you, Brian.